This is They Create Worlds, episode 37, Nintendo and Gunpei Yokoi. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we will do our first biography. Gumpei Yokoi. That's right. A man who, more than anybody, has shaped the Nintendo we know today from a creative perspective and from a technological philosophy perspective. Certainly... Shigeru Miyamoto is the greatest creative force at Nintendo now and has been for decades, but Miyamoto himself obviously had mentors at one time when he was a young budding designer, and I think it's fair to say that no mentor of his was more important than Yokoi, and Yokoi himself has had an impact on a lot of the hardware they've done as well. So he was sort of the big programmer, designer at Nintendo before... Miyamoto and all the legends in history we know of today. He wasn't a programmer, but yes, in terms of electrical engineering and in terms of design philosophy, he is certainly the person that was at the forefront of what Nintendo was doing. He's been given credit for a few things that he didn't do. We touched on that very briefly in our preview of this episode. But none of that is to diminish the incredible things that he did, in fact, do at Nintendo. And so we're going to just take a look at Yokoi's life at Nintendo and how he shaped the company that we know today. Okay, then, like so many things, how do we start off with this? We have him at Nintendo. Nintendo is a card company way back in the lands before and is now starting to get into electronics and video games. Well, this is even, we're not even talking about them getting into electronics and video games at this point. We're going back even earlier than that. We are going back to the Nintendo of the 1960s. Nintendo in the 1960s was owned and operated by a very ambitious young man, Hiroshi Yamauchi, who of course was the president of the company all the way from 1949 until stepping down in the early 2000s. That's quite the long run. A ridiculously long run. It's a family-owned company. It was his great-grandfather that had established the company back in 1889. It was dedicated to a peculiarly Japanese card game called Hanafuda. But Yamauchi had a real ambition to make it so much more than that. He started by getting them into Western playing cards and modernizing their card creation process, going to coated plastic cards, the kind of cards you buy for nothing at the store today. but The bicycle cards and whatnot. Right, that kind of thing. But uh, back then, that just wasn't being done in Japan. It was being done in the U.S. And he started by growing the card business. And then after a time, he realized that he was never going to be able to become a huge, huge company just in the card business. He was already the largest card company in Japan, but he knew that cards wasn't going to get him much further. He could become the largest playing card company in the world, and he still wouldn't be that 
huge a company. I mean, you mentioned Bicycle. Bicycle was the largest playing card company in the world. And yeah, they have a good business doing cards, but are they Nabisco? Are they Procter & Gamble? Are they Apple? No, of course not. <laughs> they don't have the diversity in order to have the universal reach and appeal. Pretty much if you want playing cards, you pretty much buy Bicycle playing cards, at least in the United States. I don't know about elsewhere in, in the world. Sure. He decided he needed to diversify, so he got his company listed on the stock exchange, the Osaka Stock Exchange, in 1962 as Nintendo Company Limited, and he began a massive diversification strategy, and, and he experimented in all sorts of crazy things, most of which did not work. One of the first things he tried was instant rice cups, very similar to the ramen noodle concept. Obviously, instant ramen had become such a big thing, and so he thought he would try that with Japan's other staple, which is rice. And that just didn't work at all. It was a miserable failure. He ran a taxi cab company for a while, a taxi service. Eventually, he got kind of tired of dealing with taxi unions, and so he sold that off. The company continued to exist, but it wasn't Nintendo. He opened a love hotel. Word is that he was perhaps the biggest client of his own love hotel. Oh, my. He was quite the playboy. And the, the Love Hotel did okay, but that wasn't something that was going to build a big company either. And what he finally decided to do was he already had distribution into Japanese department stores and toy stores, etc., with his playing cards. And so he finally decided to leverage those pre-existing retail channels and get the company more heavily into games and more heavily into toys. That's where. Mr. Yokoi enters the picture. Gunpei Yokoi graduated from college in 1965. He was a Kyoto native. Nintendo's in Kyoto. Has an electrical engineering degree. He puts his resume out there. Nobody wants him. No one wants to hire him. I presume it had something to do with his academic standing. None of the biographies go into that. But clearly nobody thought he was a desirable candidate. Obviously, this is before Japan gets really, really big in electronics, too. So it's not like there was probably as much demand as there was in, say, the 80s. But still, nobody wants him. He submits an application to Nintendo basically because they're in his hometown. He gets hired. But this is before the toy business, because the toy business is at the end of the 60s. This is 1965. What he's hired to do is maintain the card manufacturing machinery. Hmm. All the electronics and machinery that... Well, it's not going to be electronics at this point. It's really oh, yeah. going to be electromechanical. Okay. Mm-hmm. He's an engineer. He's not using all of his engineering talent, but he can maintain some card machines. It's not a very glamorous job, and it's not a job that really demands all of his time. So he has a lot of free time on his hands at work, and he spends a lot of that time just tinkering with stuff, just for the fun of it. One day, when Mr. Yamauchi is inspecting the hard assembly lines or whatever, he happens upon Yokoi doing some of his tinkering. And the very next day, Yokoi is summoned into Mr. Yamauchi's office. Of course, he's thinking that he's going to be disciplined. This is, this is Japan. They are very serious about their work in Japan. Mm -hmm. and he's basically goofing off at work. He's not goofing off in lieu of doing something important because the machinery doesn't need his attention all the time. 
but he's not being very serious in his job. But that's not what Mr. Yamauchi wants at all. Mr. Yamauchi saw the thing that he was fiddling with, which was this extending grabber device kind of thing, and tells him to fashion that into a commercial product. And the result of that is a toy called the Ultra Hand, which becomes a massive success in Japan. It sells on the order of 1.2 million units. It's based on this successful concept that Yokoi is elevated to be the head of the brand new engineering department of the brand new games division of Nintendo Company Limited. Quite the step up. Absolutely. Hiroshi Yamauchi is a man who really recognized talent and who really recognized when a product was going to sell. That was his real talent. For instance, in the video game field, he did not play video games. He had no truck with video games. And he's a businessman. He's not a technical guy. He's not a programmer. He's not an engineer. But if you brought a product before Yamauchi and demonstrated that product to him, he had an uncanny sense of whether it would be successful or not. Just like anybody, he doesn't, he's not perfect. Not everything that he thought might be big would be big. But he was the sole decider at Nintendo on what got produced and what didn't. There were no focus groups. There was no marketing department. They had a marketing department to do advertising and whatnot, but not to do market research. There was no close advisor. It was just, does Mr. Yamauchi think this is going to sell? And nine times out of ten, the answer was, yes, it will. And that was why Nintendo was successful during his tenure, 1949 to 2002. So that gets Yokoi starting to design toys. He's not the only one designing toys. They're putting out a wide array of products. But he is certainly responsible for many of the successful ones. Of course, very quickly, he wants to try to move into something that is a little more in tune with his degree. A lot of his early toys, there's the Ultra Hand. There's a pitching machine that they make, which is not electronic. There's a periscope kind of device that he tries that isn't as big a hit. But none of this really uses his electrical engineering skills. While he's thinking about what to do, he thinks about the fact that he realizes or recalls or whatever you want to call it, that there is some amount of electrical current that passes through the human body. We're conductors. Yep. This is why you don't put Mr. Hairdryer and Mr. Person in Mr. Water at the same time. No. Unless you're Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what he comes up with is the idea that, that he could create a machine to determine the attractedness between people. Now, he's not the first one to come up with the idea of a love tester. Love testers have been done before. In the United States, they often involved kissing. That's not going to fly in Japan just because it's more socially conservative in terms of what you do in public. Not to mention extremely hygienic. They like everything being clean. Sure. But holding hands would work. Basically, it was a love testing machine where each person grabs the machine with one hand and then they hold hands and it measures the amount of electric current passing through them to decide whether, you know, you're a good match or not. I mean, obviously it's all, you know, gimmicky. It's not real love. But there is something to the fact that if you're attracted to someone, there's a good possibility 
that you'll get a higher reading because oftentimes when one is nervous, because say they're going to hold hands with somebody that they like, they're going to start sweating. And that sweat serves as a, an enhancement to the conductivity. So, I mean, the sweater you are if you're, when you're doing something like this, it is true, the more energy will show up on the meter. Now, that has nothing to do with love, but it does mean you can see if you're getting some kind of response from the other person in, in a way. But it's a toy. It's all in good fun. Right. It's one of those things. It's like, oh, let's try this once so we can say we can. <laughs> right. So they do the Love Tester. That's released in 1969, and that's a pretty big hit. And it's after that that Yamauchi is basically like, yes, do more of this. Let's do more electronic toys. The next big toy that they have is a target shooting game using solar cells. A light gun type contraption where the gun shoots light at a solar cell and then stuff happens. Barrels break apart. A lion roars. You know, they have all of these special toys. In order to create this, he brings another engineer into the company named Masayuki Uemura, who was at Sharp, the big electronics company. Uemura had actually been a Sharp salesman who came to Nintendo to see if Nintendo might be interested in using their solar cells. And that's when Yokoi came up with this concept. And not only did he love the concept, but he liked the sales engineer that was trying to sell this stuff to him. And so he hires Uemura into the company. Uemura doesn't really factor into our story today anymore, but it's interesting to note that then he's the engineer in charge of the group that creates the Famicom and the Super Famicom. So that's Yokoi who hired him. Yokoi who saw this sales engineer walk into his office and was like, yeah, let's hire that guy. And if it hadn't been for that, how the Famicom, the Super Famicom... And the rest of Nintendo's history could be very different today. Sure, as, as with anything like that. So they do this light gun, this solar cell thing, beam gun thing is what they call it, the beam gun SP. And it does very well. So then they're looking, how can we expand this even more? Yokoi realizes that there is a real boom at this period of time in air gun shooting, and in skeet shooting. Of course, with Japan's restrictive gun laws and with just Japan's restrictive space, it's not always easy for the public to engage in an activity like skeet shooting or air gun target shooting with real guns or outdoors or whatnot. We talked about that a little bit when we talked about how David Rosen had such success with gun-based arcade games starting his own arcade business back in the 50s. What they decide to do is create an indoor skeet shooting range using this solar cell technology. So you have this light gun and then it registers hits, except it's, it's not going to be solar cells, I don't think, when it's all said and done. It's going to be because they're using, I think, video recording kind of technology and whatnot. But the point is, it's the beam gun concept moved into a location-based entertainment setting and to appeal to an older audience. It's not just a toy. They decide that they can do this in bowling alleys because Japan, we talked about this in our Origins of the Japanese Arcade episode, Japan had a huge bowling boom in the 60s. Absolutely huge. There were a couple thousand bowling alleys in the country. And this 
ain't that large a country by land area. So that's That's a lot of bowling alleys. Definitely taking up some valuable real estate. But after the oil shock and the energy crisis at the beginning of the 70s that led to a recession, these bowling alleys, the fad had kind of peaked, and now the people had less disposable income due to the energy crisis and the recession. They were moving on to other pastimes. So a lot of bowling alleys were going out of business. But these were perfect venues to do this kind of location-based entertainment because you have these bowling lanes, so you have this long space between where you stand and the back of this bowling lane, and then you can have your projector back there, and those uh, skeets, those discs can be shown flying across there, and then you can shoot them from the other end of the lane. So they come up with this new location-based entertainment idea that Yokoi is instrumental in developing. Again, he sees this merging of two things, this toy that they have with these solar cells and the popularity of target shooting in Japan at that time and merges them into a new and fun form of entertainment. It looks like this is going to really take off, but the problem is that oil shock that I mentioned before. The oil shock is hitting right when they're putting these first ones into development, and then the recession that follows just kills that business. They can't do it. They had been planning to open these centers all over Japan, and they never managed to do that. It's too expensive. No one's going to come now that there's this recession. So they kind of double back again, and they're like, okay, we can't do this, but we have this shooting technology using these light guns and using these screens and all of this stuff. What else can we do with that? And the obvious thing is the arcades, the Mm -hmm. game centers. So that's how you get Wild Gunman, which is a game we talked about in a different context in another one of our recent episodes. Wild Gunman is this skeet shooting game scaled down to just a regular arcade-style game. And so that's how Nintendo gets into the coin-op industry. And every step of the way, it's been Yokoi that's brought him here. It's Yokoi that saw that he could use the solar cells to make these beam gun games. It was Yokoi who saw you could take the beam gun concept and turn it into a location-based entertainment. And it was Yokoi that saw when that big, elaborate location-based entertainment wasn't going to work, that they could do a much more intimate, traditional arcade game kind of location-based entertainment instead. Makes sense. So that's the kind of key part of, of Yokoi's story in the 1970s. He's in charge of what eventually becomes the the Nintendo R&D division. That is then split in two in 1979. And that's when you get Nintendo R&D 1, which continues to be Yokoi's group, and Nintendo R&D 2, which is given to Uemura, who we mentioned before. And then it's R&D 2 that does a lot of the arcade games, though not all of them. And it's them also that does the NES later and the and the Super NES, the Famicom and Super Famicom. Yokoi, meanwhile, hits on another concept, and that's what leads to the Game & Watch system. So the Game & Watch really came before the Nintendo. Oh, yes. Game & Watch was 1980. Famicom was 1983. Sort of like in my mind, I always thought the, the Game & Watch and the Famicom came out about the same time, or maybe the Game & Watch came out a little bit after. Nope, nope. It was 1980. They were in the video game market first with their dedicated consoles in the late 1970s, but... 
Game & Watch was before any programmable consoles. So before talking about Game & Watch specifically, it's useful at this point to discuss one of Gunpei Yokoi's core ideas of how to create a successful electronic product. And what he really believed in is what he called lateral thinking with withered technology. And what that means is don't be on the cutting edge. Don't always have the most bleeding edge hardware, the most bleeding edge graphics, the most bleeding edge concepts in technology. Because you're going to run into problems it'll be difficult to develop for, or it'll be really expensive, or there are all sorts of reasons why that could inhibit the amount that you can sell to the consumer. What he really believed in instead was take some technology that already fundamentally exists, then do something no one has ever thought to do with it before, lateral thinking. And that is how you create a successful product. And just think about how that applies to Nintendo through most of its history. Think of the Nintendo Wii. Exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking of. It seems like on the Super Nintendo on, they took technology that was already out there and they just improved upon it. Right. With the exception of the N64, which was a real divergence. That was the one time that they actually were using state of the state of the state of the art technology. Yeah, and though the N64 was somewhat successful, it paled in comparison to its competitors. It absolutely did. Some of their most successful products, whether they be the Game Boy or the Wii or the Game & Watch that we're just about to talk about, were all based around this philosophy of taking mature technology and using it in a new surprising and delightful way rather than just trying to be at the bleeding edge of technology. So the early 1970s is the time of the pocket calculator boom. And this is true in Japan and the United States both, because this is the first time that integrated circuits have become sophisticated enough to put all of the functioning of a calculator on just a handful of chips, often even just a single chip. So these things take off. Calculators fall in prices. Calculators used to cost $300, start costing $50, $40, $20. It's a boom-bust, and we've talked about the digital calculator boom-bust in some of our cycle episodes, but during this period of time, they're just insanely popular. It's a culture that is so astoundingly primitive that they think that the pocket digital calculator is the best thing they've ever seen in their lives. Just wait until they see the digital watches. (laughs) That's right. They're coming next. (laughs) So... One day, as the story goes, it could be that the story is just a cute story and it really encapsulates a period of noticing this multiple times and reflection on it and et cetera, et cetera. But we'll go with the story because why not? One day, so the story goes, Gunpei Yokoi is on the the subway or on the train and he sees a salaryman, middle-aged guy or whatever, not a child is the important thing just fiddling around with his pocket calculator. Just not doing work with it, just having fun fiddling with it, you know? And he's like, hmm, this is interesting. People like fiddling with this stuff. 
And so he kind of files that away, kind of thinks maybe there's something there. Then at some point, not too long after that, he ends up chauffeuring his boss, Mr. Yamauchi, because Gunpei Yokoi, one of his tastes was for foreign cars, American cars and the like. Japan is like Britain. They drive on the other side of the road from where we do. So, of course, the steering wheels on the other side, you know, everything in the car is reversed, too. Yamuchi had a foreign car, so everything was on the wrong side for him. And on this particular day, his chauffeur, he doesn't drive himself, his chauffeur was sick or otherwise not in the office. And Yamuchi had a meeting he had to go to with uh, CEOs of other big companies, including Sharp. He needed a driver. And there was no one else in the company that could drive a foreign car safely because they were used to the, the setup of the, of the cab, except for Gunpei Yokoi. So we need you to head on over to that car and drive it. That's right. So he's driving the bus. And, you know, this is kind of awkward. It's not, I mean, obviously, he presents product to Mr. Yamuchi. It's not like they never speak to each other, but... They're not in the same social circles. They're not friends. They're not colleagues, even though they work together. It's his boss. So he's trying to think of things to say. So suddenly he just, he blurts out this calculator idea. It's like, you know, I've noticed people like playing on their calculators. Maybe we could make a calculator-sized, calculator-like game that people can play. There's not really much response from Mr. Yamuchi in the car. But sometime later... Mr. Yamuchi tells him at the meeting that he drove him to, I told your idea to the president of Sharp. Of course, Sharp makes the LCD screens that would be necessary to create this kind of device. And he thought that that was an excellent idea. Let's do that. Offhand comment leads to go make things. <laughs> that's right. And so that's the story. And, you know, is it, is it too good to be true? Is it a little cute? Maybe. I mean, all of those events probably happened, but it may have been more than just seeing one guy play with a calculator that put the idea in his head, and it could be that he was going to pitch this idea at a formal presentation at some point, whether he happened to be driving Mr. Yamuchi that day or not. It was convenient at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's a good story, so we'll go with it. And that's how the game and watch is formed. Game and watch is just... Huge. It never does well in the U.S., but over the life of it, they sell like 30 million units around the world and over 12 million, I think, units in Japan. That's all the games combined over the course of, I mean, they were still making new games into the early 90s. So that's, uh, that's pretty big. That's pretty successful. That's their really first big, massive video game like hit. I mean, they're not video games. They're they use LCD screens, there's no video signal, and they're all self-contained, and it's, uh... It's like Tiger Electronics. Yeah, but better quality than most of the Tiger Electronics stuff. But I the think thing that we could say. probably most relate to. Sure. And so, obviously, that idea takes some refining. Other people contribute to it uh, in terms of formulating the final product, but it all starts with Gunpei Yokoi and seeing that guy on the train. So that's big video game invention number one for 
Mr. Yokoi. Big video game invention number two is not so much an invention, it's the discovery of the talent of Shigeru Miyamoto. Shigeru Miyamoto is hired into Nintendo in 1977, literally as a favor to his father. His father knows Mr. Yamauchi. Miyamoto studied industrial design in school, so he's not a programmer, he's not an engineer, he's not a technical guy. He's a designer of products. They really didn't need any designers at the time that Miyamoto was out looking for a job. And Miyamoto was kind of aimless in the way he was looking for a job. He was a dreamer. I mean, he's a creative guy. And oftentimes creative guys don't make the best salary men <laughs> because their heads are in the clouds and they're thinking of this and they're not thinking of practical things like making the money to eat three meals a day or something. And we can get away with two. <laughs> right. Nintendo's not really hiring, but as a favor to Miyamoto's father, Yamauchi agrees to see him. And Yamauchi is genuinely impressed by some of the things he brings with him. He brings some drawings and designs. He has this idea for these kind of wooden hangers, I think they're wooden, that don't have the sharp edges that the traditional wire hangers do that could be somewhat dangerous to children, and then are designed to have animals, like animal heads on them and whatnot, to make them more children-friendly. So he they had this idea for a children's hanger, and he brought a couple other designs. Yamauchi recognized that there was some design talent there. So even though they didn't really need him, they hired him, and they stuck him in the planning department. For the next few years, he did art. He helped design cases for some of Nintendo's first dedicated consoles. It's not designing the games, just the casing. He does some art on some of the cabinets for their arcade games, and then I think from there he even graduates into doing a little bit of pixel art on some of their arcade games. But he's not a game designer, and he's not a game programmer. It's not his job to create games at Nintendo. Well, around this time, Gunpei Yokoi has come to the conclusion that designers are going to be important in the development of video games, which is really a radical idea at this time. There is no separation between game designer and game programmer. Like Atari in the 70s, where the programmer made the game, came up with the concept, coded it, point A to point B, out the door, pretty much one, two guys. Right. And arcade games would sometimes have larger teams. They may still be three or four guys instead, because that's more complicated because you're designing hardware in tandem with software. So you have a couple of hardware guys, a couple of software guys, but the programmers and the engineers are doing their own art. They're doing their own game design. You don't have this concept necessarily of a separate game designer. There are a couple of outliers that already exist by this point. It's not a completely foreign concept, but it's not the norm at all. Yokoi recognizes that this is something that needs to change. Presumably, I don't know what his thoughts were, but presumably because as the hardware gets more sophisticated, the types of games you can do get more sophisticated, the type of art you can draw gets more sophisticated, and it just gets to the point where you need specialists in these areas to realize the full potential of the technology rather than just being able to get by with programmer's art. Just like anything in the modern world, you can have a broad general knowledge about 
almost anything, but if you really sit down and look at something and really try to understand how does this come to be, how is this designed, how is this made, it's really way more complicated than you anyone ever gives it credit for. Example, this podcast delving into video game history. <laughs> you think you know what's going on with the video game history, but way more going on than the average person has any conception of. Sure. Yokoi recognizes Miyamoto as someone who could potentially be a very good game designer. And so Yokoi takes Miyamoto under his wing and starts teaching him kind of his own conception of what is good game design. There isn't enough in English to say, I don't know how much of who Miyamoto is today is just Miyamoto's raw genius. It's mostly Miyamoto's raw genius, I think. But there's no doubt that that genius was shaped by Yokoi. And it just so happens that at this exact moment, Nintendo becomes desperate for a new game because they have their brand new American branch, as we've talked about this before, and they had shipped them a game called Radar Scope, and that game just bombed horribly, miserably, and Nintendo of America was in danger of just collapsing, and they needed a new game right now that could fit in the existing Radar Scope cabinet, the existing, existing Radar Scope hardware and control scheme, and take the place of that game so that they can try to salvage something in North America. The way the story is often told, uh, and, it, and as near as I can tell is incorrect, is that everybody was busy because of the time constraint everyone being busy. Miyamoto, the untested guy, was given a chance to create a game. What seems to actually be the case, now that we have a little more access to some sources with Japanese individuals and whatnot, is that Nintendo cast about broadly for game designs amongst all its engineers for something that looked promising. And that Yokoi, because he was kind of mentoring Miyamoto along, gave Miyamoto a chance to submit some game ideas. So it wasn't that they went straight to Miyamoto and said, make a game. It's that they were soliciting ideas from all over. But Miyamoto would not have been given a chance, since he was not a regular game designer, to submit any ideas if it wasn't for Yokoi saying, let's see what you got, kid, essentially. He actually submits multiple game designs. Um, in one interview, I think it said he had like five ideas for games. And these are just like pitches. It's not like he had five fully formed games. They had kind of five pitches for games. They picked the one that ultimately became Donkey Kong. Donkey Kong was, in some ways, a collaboration between Miyamoto and Yokoi. The fundamental design was very much Miyamoto's, and the programming was actually done by an outside company. At this point, Nintendo didn't really have its own programmers. But Yokoi was guiding the process and keeping an eye on him and serving as a sounding board and helping him shape the design of this game. And at the start, it was going to be a Popeye game. Nintendo had the rights to Popeye. They used them in some of their playing cards, and they used them in some of their other products. They do eventually release a Popeye arcade game after Donkey Kong. But for whatever reason, at this moment, they're not able to. Nobody seems to know. Even Miyamoto says in interviews, I don't remember why we couldn't use it. Yokoi, unfortunately, is no longer with us, so 
Nobody can ask him. I don't know if it's because they discovered that they actually had to negotiate separately for the video game rights. It may be the logical conclusion would be that they assumed, since they had the rights to Popeye already in other products, that they just assumed they had the Popeye rights for everything in Japan. And then King Features came back and was like, no, 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 we never gave you any video game rights. And that they had to negotiate that separately. And so those negotiations caused it to lapse. And, and that is 100% speculation on my part. I'm just saying that kind of scenario seems like a likely scenario for what happened. Mm-hmm. Quickly, what were the other four ideas he had? Don't know. Nothing's, Don't know. Yeah, nothing's ever been said on that. It's just in one interview he said that he submitted like five game ideas. Okay, and the only mm-hmm. one we know about is the one that became Donkey Kong. Right. His original idea had been for something very Pac-Man-like, which is not surprising that the power pellet in Pac-Man is actually inspired by Popeye and his spinach. Pac-Man is a wimp until he eats his power pellet, and then he can turn and beat everybody up. Popeye is a wimp until he eats his spinach, and then he can beat Bluto up. So, unsurprisingly, Miyamoto's first idea for a Popeye game is something similar where there's spinach, and he eats the spinach, and then he's able to turn around... It wouldn't have necessarily been a maze game, but I mean, that mechanic was very similar. So because Pac-Man was so huge and the Popeye idea of eating spinach and then becoming this big character was so similar to this popular Pac-Man, that's why it kind of made it a natural fit to create this Popeye game. So the initial inspiration for the game is Miyamoto's, but Yokoi is the one that actually defines the setting for the game. Because he particularly remembered a Popeye cartoon where Olive Oil was in a construction site and she was sleepwalking. And every time she was about to fall off as Popeye was trying to save her, there'd be another girder that would magically fall into place so that she could keep walking and she wouldn't fall off this building. So it's entirely through Yokoi that we got the construction site idea. But after that, it's really Miyamoto's game. He's the one that creates kind of the barrel mechanic with barrels coming towards you and then decides, well, what would you do if a barrel came towards you and you were a person? You'd jump. Originally, it was just going to be climbing ladders to avoid it, but Miyamoto came up with this idea of having Mario jumping. And so Yokoi provides some structure, but it's Miyamoto that's carrying the idea forward. So they're going to have this game where you have Bluto having kidnapped Olive Oil and taken her to the top of this construction site, and then Popeye has to come and rescue her. So when they discover that they can't use those characters and they have to create their own characters, it's a very logical step to just take that same basic premise and replace those three characters with their own original characters, and that's how you get Mario and Pauline and Donkey Kong. So Yukoi was not directly involved in all of those kind of decisions, but he was the one guiding Miyamoto as he created this game. Of course, that's the big arcade hit that really helps launch Nintendo into the stratosphere, and Miyamoto gets primary responsibility for that, but Yokoi certainly gets secondary. And then actually, in Mario Brothers, the arcade game Mario Brothers, Yokoi's influence is much, much, much bigger. Yokoi is essentially the co-designer of that game with Miyamoto, because in Donkey Kong, you may recall that Mario, if he falls from a high enough height, 
he actually dies. Yes, he does. And this is because they were trying to maintain a hold of some kind of realism here. And in Miyamoto's mind, if you fall a certain distance, it's going to hurt a lot. As they were starting to put the basic structure in place for another game starring Mario, the game that became Mario Brothers, Yokoi was the one that said, why does he have to, to die if he falls from a height? Why not let him fall from any height? And Miyamoto was like, yeah, that makes sense. So they change it so that you can jump and bounce all around the screen, which becomes a very core part of the gameplay mechanic. And then it's Yokoi that says, we have all these platforms. Wouldn't it be a fun gameplay mechanic to jump up and hit the platform beneath an enemy and defeat the enemy in that manner? So that was Yokoi's idea, according to Miyamoto. But they wanted that mechanic where you jump up and hit them once and then have to come up and knock them down, you know, by running into them afterwards. Finishing move. Right. And so, because this is the way people's minds often work, even when they're creating something fanciful. The next step was, okay, what kind of enemy wouldn't just be obliterated by punching them from beneath once? You know, it's a fantasy game. What does it matter? But this is important to them. So they brainstorm, and I don't know whether this is Miyamoto's idea or Yokoi's idea, but they think about it, and what they come up with is turtles. Because turtles have a hard protective shell, so they figure, yeah, hit them once, it stuns them and surprises them, and they retreat back into their shell, and then you can come up and finish them off when they're in that vulnerable position. Yep. So the entire beginning of the entire Mario aesthetic of turtles and Koopas and all of this stuff all stems from just a couple of guys being like, but what creature would survive a hit from below? <laughs> Imagine if they thought of crabs. Well, there are crabs in the game too, aren't there? Yes, there are. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> uh, that's why we have Koopas, essentially. I mean, they weren't considered Koopas then. <laughs> All of that mythology obviously comes more from Super Mario Brothers than from Mario Brothers, but that's where all of these kind of basic concepts of what Mario is and what Mario does comes from. And quite frankly, Yokoi is just as instrumental in shaping the concept of Mario and his world as, as Miyamoto is, in a way. I would still give Miyamoto the larger share of the credit, but Yokoi's played a role. He certainly seemed to be tempering Miyamoto into what he became today. Right. I mean, let's remember again, Miyamoto was an industrial designer. He liked manga. He liked to draw. He played the banjo. He liked music. But he wasn't a technical guy. He wasn't a programmer. He wasn't a game designer. He wasn't like designing board games in his spare time or something. He was drawing comics and he was designing product. That's, that's what he was doing. There is a very real possibility that without meeting Yokoi, you would not have Miyamoto, the most brilliant game designer that ever lived. His life might have just taken him in a different direction. Invention number two, though it's a little strange to call it an invention, of Yokoi in video games is Shigeru Miyamoto, quite simply. Mm-hmm. Invention number three stems directly from invention number two. 
because Donkey Kong becomes a huge hit. Because it's such a huge hit, they, of course, want to make a Game & Watch of Donkey Kong. Definitely. All of the early Game & Watch games had very simple controls. Like, the very first one was Ball, where you have a guy that's now called Mr. Game & Watch. He wasn't called that back then, but you have Mr. Game & Watch moving back and forth while keeping balls in the air. So you just need a button to press to go left and a button to press to go right, and those are your controls. And you have one on either side of the of the screen, and that's how you control it. The other games have similar simple gameplay that just needs a couple of buttons. Well, Donkey Kong, you have to be able to move left and right, but you have to jump. And go up the ladder. And go up the ladder and sometimes down the ladder. Yep. So this is a problem because the way that the Game & Watch works right now doesn't allow for that. And in the arcade, you use a joystick for that. All the games that have that kind of basic movement are using some form of joystick. You can't really use a joystick on the Game & Watch. That's not going to be economical or really feasible for that kind of thing. Probably be bigger than the Game & Watch itself. (laughs) Right. So what do you do? How do you replicate the movement of Mario in the arcade game in a Game & Watch game? And the answer that Yokoi comes up with, and I'm pretty sure this is Yokoi's innovation personally and not one of his staff members, though I could be wrong, is, well, we've got two buttons, left and right. Let's add two more buttons, up and down, and let's put them in a cross formation so that you can manipulate them all with one thumb. And then have a central pivoting thing Mm -hmm. to just rock back and forth. Right. And thus we get the D-pad. And thus we get the D-pad. Flash forward just a little bit later, when the Famicom project is starting, one of the team members working on the Famicom is a person that used to work for Yokoi on Game & Watch games. He suggests, when they're trying to think up a control scheme for the Famicom, for the NES, He says, well, we've got this thing that we did with the Game & Watch where we have this cross-shaped directional pad. And Uemura, who is in charge of Famicom development, thinks that that sounds like a pretty neat way of handling it. And so the D-pad migrates from Game & Watch to the NES because of this connection of a team member that was in both places and migrates from the NES to... Every single game system that follows it, for the most part, sometimes it's just vestigial, sometimes it's central, but even today, there is still a D-pad of some kind on a modern game controller. Some of them are good, some of them are bad, some of them you just go, why Xbox, why do you have it so there's a button in the diagonal direction (laughs) instead of just the cardinal direction so that when I try to rotate my thumb around like I did on the Nintendo and it doesn't work and you make me sad and lose the game? Why? Why, Xbox? Why? It's okay, Jeff. The Xbox One fixed that. It's it's okay again. Oh, okay. The, the D-pad's better now. <laughs> but yeah, so that's, that's innovation number three of our good friend Mr. Yokoi, the D-pad. So already, if Gumbe Yokoi had not done anything else with the rest of his life, then introduce Game & Watch D-Pad and Mr. Miyamoto. That's a pretty eventful and very influential life. Exactly. But he doesn't stop there, though at this point, it becomes confused in the narrative a lot as to what Gunpei Yokoi did and what his subordinates did. And so 
we've got to separate some of the things that he's often taken credit for. By the middle of the 1980s, when the NES has come out, there are three development divisions of Nintendo. R&D 1, which is the original engineering division going all the way back to the late 60s or early 70s, that's run by Gunpei Yokoi. R&D 2, which we discussed, which created the Famicom and the Super Famicom. And R&D 3, which primarily works on hardware enhancements for cartridges and whatnot. They're the ones creating some of the special memory chips that allow NES games to do things that the original hardware didn't let them to do. That was kind of their primary purpose. Things like the FX chip. Well, actually, that's a completely different thing because that was actually done by some British guys. Oh. But the MMA chips, the memory mapping chips, MMC1, MMC2, special chips that allow for increased functionality in NES games. Okay, so maybe Dracula's Curse and the extra sound you get with one of the chips there. Similar. That was a chip that was actually made by Konami, not Nintendo. But similar idea, yes. Okay. There's also... Entertainment Analysis and Development, which is not a division at this point. It's elevated to the level of a division in the 90s, but it's also a major area. And that's basically Miyamoto's space to make games because Miyamoto's so brilliant. He's not the manager of the division. He's often incorrectly labeled the manager of the division. There's actually a supervisor over him that's kind of in charge of the administrative side of things, but he's the lead design guy. And that's where such brilliant things as Super Mario Brothers and Legend of Zelda and all of that good stuff is coming out of EAD. R&D1, Yokoi's group, is responsible for the Game & Watch. They also do a fair number of NES games. These include games like Kid Icarus and Metroid. Those both come out of R&D1. Yokoi is often labeled the father of Metroid. I don't see any situation where that's fair. As near as I can tell, and obviously we don't have complete great sourcing on Japanese stuff, but as near as I can tell, Yokoi had nothing to do with the initial concept of Metroid, with the aesthetic choices on creating Metroid, in the game design of Metroid. He wasn't the director. He wasn't one of the planners. He wasn't anything except that he was in charge of the division. So, of course, he had to approve the work that was being done on the game. And it's even possible that he provided feedback and input and said, maybe you should try this, maybe you should try that. But to call him the father of Metroid would be a complete inaccuracy, and we've got to stop doing that. So who would be the father? Well, the director of the game was Satoru Okada who is a very, very important part of R&D 1 and someone that we're going to talk about in a little more depth in just a few minutes here. He's the guy looking over the day-to-day -day development of the game. The writer, the scenario writer, is Makoto Kano, and then the designers on the game are Hiroji Kiyotaki and Hirofumi Matsuoka. And then there's also an artist named Yoshio Sakamoto who plays a role on the game and who becomes the lead on Super Metroid. Super Metroid, again, it's Yokoi's division, but Yoshio Sakamoto is the guy that was responsible for Super Metroid and has basically been responsible for all the Nintendo Japan-developed Metroid since, which is largely the Game Boy ones. We're not talking Metroid Prime because those were developed in America. Those are the people that you would consider to be the developers and progenitors and creators of Metroid, not Gunpei Yokoi. 
I'm sure that he provided a critical support role and all of that, but you, you just can't call him the father of Metroid. So that's myth number one on Gunpei Yokoi. Myth number two isn't so much a myth, but it's perhaps an overstatement of credit. The main thing that Gunpei Yokoi is known for that he was so known for that it even merited an obituary for him in the New York Times when he died in 1997. And believe me, nobody in video games, especially Japanese video games, were getting obituaries in the New York Times in 1997. No. Was the Game Boy. Gunpei Yokoi is considered the father of the Game Boy. And there's truth to that, but there's also mistruth to that. And that's what brings us back around to the fellow that I just told you about a second ago, Satoru Okada. So now we're going to have in our biography episode, a little mini biography episode nestled in here so we can talk (laughs) about Mr. Okada. Satoru Okada spent his entire career at Nintendo. He, He retired a few years ago, but he was there for decades. He was a technical guy going way back. He used to build his own radio sets and whatnot when he was in junior high school. And he went to college in Kyoto. Nintendo was one of the companies that he applied to. He was very involved in the Game & Watch series from a very early date. And it's interesting because it's very similar to Yokoi because he wasn't planning to go to Nintendo. His professor, one of his professors in school, told him to apply to a specific electronics company, Matsuo Denki, which was a very fine, prestigious electronics company. And he blew the interview. He didn't get hired. Like Yokoi before him, he just kind of decided, I need a job and I don't care where it is. And he ended up being hired at Nintendo. And so he joined in 1969. He joined in 69 and he was there all the way till 2010. Very long run. Yes. <laughs> that, was, that was his career. And I mean, he retired. He, he didn't leave to join another company. He spent his entire career at this company that... He only scrambled to join because he needed a job and nothing else was coming up. So he was very involved in all of the electronics work that the company did. He was involved in many of the products that we've already talked about that Yokoi was spearheading. And even though Yokoi wasn't really that much older than him, Yokoi was the veteran and very much served as his mentor. Another talent that Yokoi mentored, he mentored almost all of the important engineering talents at Nintendo. And that's a very important skill in any field, being able to have a mentor who can take you under their wing and say, here's the stuff they're not teaching you in school. Here's the practical applications. Here's some of my concepts and ideas of what I'm trying to improve and build on. And the mark of a great mentor is having someone who exceeds the mentor. Mm -hmm. And it seems like he's had at least two successes that have done just that. Well, sure. And today at Nintendo, the lead software game design creative guy in the company is Shigeru Miyamoto, the lead hardware guy in the company who's been responsible for the creation of all of the company's console systems, not the handhelds, since the N64, is Genyo Takeda. Both of these people were mentored by Yokoi. Takeda was directly hired by Yokoi. Miyamoto was not hired by him, but as we discussed, took him under his wing. And these are the two most senior people on the creative and on the hardware side in the entire company. 
we're not that far removed, even though Yokoi has been gone from the company for a couple of decades now. We still feel the influence of Yokoi today in the current leadership of the company. There's a direct line there. So to get back to Okada, he is kind of the main hardware guy directly under Yokoi in R&D 1. In the late 1980s, it's time to create a successor, essentially, to the Game & Watch. They still make a few Game & Watch games, but this is clearly something that's more or less run its course. Yokoi comes up with the idea of doing a Game Boy, whatever that is. But his idea is much more similar to the Game & Watch. The Game & Watch games, as popular as they were, were very simple very self-contained, and while the entire line lasted for many years, individual games in the line didn't necessarily hold their appeal for more than a year or two. Yokoi wanted something as cheap as possible. This time it was going to be programmable. It was going to have separate cartridges, but it was going to be far more akin to something like the Microvision, which is something Milton Bradley had released at the end of the 70s, and is certainly far behind where you should be 10 years later. Something quick and cheap with very simple disposable games, just like most of the Game & Watch games were very simple and disposable games, and something that it didn't even matter if they had third-party developers publishing for it. I mean, he really saw it, Game & Watch, as a cartridge system. So rather than releasing this Game & Watch game, then this Game & Watch game, then this Game & Watch games, you can release one base unit, the Game Boy, and have multiple games via cartridge, but they're going to be far more similar to the types of simple games that you're already seeing on Game & Watch. Okada had the ambition to make the Game Boy similar to what R&D 2 had done with the Nintendo Entertainment System, with the Famicom. He wanted something that was obviously going to be more graphically primitive than an NES, but that could have that same level of deepness to the games and sophistication to the games. He fought for this concept, which isn't always traditional in a Japanese company where there's great emphasis placed on seniority and boss tells you to do, you do. Right. It's always what the boss wants goes, and we may make a case for something, but if once the boss makes a decision, we're done. Right. So Yokoi is the father of the Game Boy, because he's the one that wanted to do a cartridge-based handheld system, and one that very importantly didn't incorporate all the state-of-the-art color graphics and this and that that would have caused it to be way too expensive and to eat batteries like nobody's business. We're looking at you, Game Gear. Yes, I was about to say, I believe somebody in this room owned a Game Gear. I still own a Game Gear. It's over there. I believe that Game Gear was almost always played plugged into the wall with its AC adapter because otherwise, what's the point? Well, the six batteries it takes to run and play is, brings me an hour of happiness and joy. <laughs> right. So you can give Yokoi credit for some of that very basic idea. But I think it's fair to say that the true father of the Game Boy is Satoru Okada, because he is the one that said, let's take this concept and let's deepen it a little bit, and let's make it something 
that isn't just going to last for a year or two, but is going to last for five or six years. And of course, it ends up lasting longer. That's all Okada. And we've got to give Okada that credit rather than Yokoi. So we can call them co-fathers of the Game Boy because we can still get Yokoi in there. But that's what he's known for above all. And in truth, if the Game Boy had been done the way Yokoi wanted to do the Game Boy, we wouldn't speak of the Game Boy in, in the terms we do today. And it's possible Nintendo would have not dominated the handheld market for decades the way they did today. I mean, obviously, they might have still come around to a design like that eventually. You can't say that nothing would have ever happened for Nintendo and handheld. But that's not Yokoi. That's, that's Satoru Okada. Yokoi came up with the basic idea, and Yokada refined it. Refined it and significantly improved it. Yep. You know, it is to Yokoi's credit that in a culture that prizes obedience to authority, that he would see Okada's passion for this project see Okada's conviction in his way of doing things, and say, okay, we'll do it your way. Not every Japanese manager would do that. We can give Yokoi some credit there too, right? Mm -hmm. But let's not call him the father of the Game Boy anymore. I think that's too much credit given to him and not enough credit given to the other people in his department that made it possible. And let's certainly not call him the father of Metroid, because you can't really give him any credit for Metroid. Right. If that was true, then a lot of other games that we love and adore and designers who came up with those, we could say, well, obviously it was whoever their manager was who came up with that. Exactly. His influence is immense. Let's not make his influence greater than it actually was. This does not in any way detract from the legacy of Gunpei Yokoi, because he still nurtured the core group of engineers and designers that made Nintendo great because he nurtured Okada too. So Okada's success with Game Boy and with the successors, because Okada was then the main hardware designer on all of Nintendo's handheld systems up through the DS, after mm -hmm. which he retired. Okada's success is partially Yokoi's success. Miyamoto's success is partially Yokoi's success. Takeda's success is partially Okoi's success if only because he recognized these talents, nurtured these talents, and created an environment at Nintendo in the engineering and R&D departments in which these talents could flourish. And I think that is his true legacy. Plus, he invented the D-pad, so I mean, right. that's not bad. Yeah, we're detracting a little bit with saying, hey, he didn't do Metroid, and he's a co-founder of creating the Game Boy a greater legacy that he leaves to Nintendo and all the influence on Nintendo he has over all the lives that he touched. I think that adds more to it than the little detractions we are saying here. And I think it's also fair to say that his influence and his mentorship, his tempering of talent, his recognition of talent, and taking these people under his wing is a greater thing than probably anything else that he's done. I don't think I could put it better myself. So back at the start, we talked about Nintendo and product development, and we talked about how nine times out of ten, Yamauchi and Nintendo is a company that really gets it right when it comes to product. But, of course, if you're right nine times out of ten, that means you still have some misses. So that's where the Virtual Boy came from. That's right. Now we unfortunately have to turn our attention to the Virtual Boy. 
because Yokoi is very much the father of the Virtual Boy, and that's not exactly, unfortunately, the greatest of his legacies. Yokoi came from a good place. In the latter period of the 16-bit era, Super NES, Sega Genesis, Yokoi really felt that game design, game development, had just completely hit a wall. Nobody was doing anything interesting and original anymore. He's right about that. Now, that doesn't mean some of the games might not have been good games, but if we're talking about originality, there isn't much done on those 16-bit systems that wasn't done on those 8-bit systems instead of game mechanics. You can have RPGs with bigger scenarios because you can cram more text and graphics into the cartridge. You can have action games with more enemies on the screen without slowdown. You can have better animations. You can have better shading that make your graphics look a million times better. You can have more parallax scrolling in the background, yada, yada, yada. But at the end of the day, what's the difference between Contra 3 and Contra? What's the difference between Mega Man X and Mega Man? What's the difference between... Final Fantasy VI and Final Fantasy. More bells and whistles, yes, but the fundamental gameplay is largely the same, I think it's fair to say. I would be inclined to agree. I mean, you got the refinement, you got the better graphics, you got the more in-depth storytelling, and it may involve cutscenes and better music and sequences and all this other stuff, but basically, you're doing the same thing. Contra, I'm shooting the bad guys and getting power-ups. Mm -hmm. Final Fantasy, I'm beating bad guys, leveling up, getting better gear to beat more bad guys. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So Yokoi felt that there was a need for something new in game design, and he was right about this, because as we discussed uh, in our Cycles episode, or our Sega episode, one of them, there was a almost crash in the market in the 93, 94, 95 period, because the general public was getting a little tired of the same old thing, and there was starting to be some oversaturation in the market. It turns out the solution to this was the PlayStation, the solution to this was CD as a format and games featuring polygonal graphics and fancy pre-rendered backgrounds for those polygonal graphics in order to introduce new gameplay mechanics like the exploration of Tomb Raider or the horror of Resident Evil or the sneaking around of Metal Gear Solid. Even though Yokoi didn't reach the right destination, he was on the right journey. Mm -hmm. He was looking for something new in game design, and it came to them through a Massachusetts company called Reflections Technology. Reflections is the company that actually developed the basic hardware of this sort of virtual reality-ish system using LEDs and mirrors mm -hmm. and creating a kind of 3D space. It's not full virtual reality, but it's something that seems a little bit akin to virtual reality. They were pitching it. They had pitched it to Sega, too, and Sega turned it down. Tom Kalinske has said that they turned down the concept. But Yokoi saw something in that. He thought that this was a way to have novel game experiences, and that's what he was really concerned with, is not the bells and whistles, but the whole lateral thinking with with a technology idea is it's not necessarily the technology that's important on its own. It's the new way of playing. And in this case, it happened to be a fairly advanced technology, too, but it wasn't about that. It was about the new way of playing. It just turned out that the hardware wasn't ready. I mean, first of all, it had to be all red LEDs because it would be way too expensive to have any kind of full color. 
Then you had the issue that it was really meant to be a headset, but then they couldn't build the headset in a way that didn't cause neck problems. And so then it had to be something that you sat on a pedestal instead. And then the adjusting of the mirrors thing is a problem. And there's the vision concerns. And there, there's just a whole host of problems. It's just, it's not a technology that's going to work. But because Gunpei Yokoi is Gunpei Yokoi, and because he has a certain amount of cachet in Nintendo, this project is allowed to continue probably, I don't know this for sure, but I'm just speculating, probably past the point it would have been allowed to continue if it had been anyone but Gunpei Yokoi doing it. Sounds fair. So it goes through production and it's released and it's just, it's a disaster. There is no way to sugarcoat the Virtual Boy. It is an absolute unmitigated disaster. It sells almost nothing. No one's interested in it. It has too many problems. It has too many perceived problems because it has the warnings and whatnot on it. Some of those warnings may have not even strictly been necessary, but the warnings were on there, which moved people away. You couldn't advertise it on television because you couldn't recreate on television the unique 3D graphics. So there was no way to advertise it well. Nobody had, at least in the first wave of games, had come up with very interesting games. It was ugly because red and black is just kind of ugly to the human eye. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just there were all sorts of problems and it was never going to work. What happened next to Mr. Yokoi is a matter of some debate. In Japan, when a person really screws up, that person is usually not dismissed. There's this very much an idea, it's lessened a little bit since the bubble economy collapsed, but there's very much this idea of lifetime employment and that you look after the company, the company looks after you. You don't fire an employee that has something like that happen, but you do make them go through a period of penance. You basically sideline them for a period of time. You don't let them do much of anything important. They're just kind of there. And then after a period of contrition, you invite them back in and they've recovered their old status and they're allowed to go about their business again. They got to reprove themselves almost. Right. Yokoi was very much to all indications sidelined after the Virtual Boy debacle. Some sources say that because of being sidelined, he left the company, that the humiliation of it or the frustration of it or the whatever of it is what caused him to leave the company. Some of his confederates at Nintendo say that, no, he had an entrepreneurial spirit and he was always planning before he got too old to go off and do his own thing as an entrepreneur. Are they just protecting his memory? Are they just saying that as a way to save face for him? Maybe. I mean, certainly the timing seems awfully odd. In a country where people normally work for one company for life and where Nintendo employees more than the employees of any of the other video game companies, tend to work for Nintendo for their entire lives. Their one big, big guy suddenly decides he wants to be an entrepreneur and leaves to do that right after he has a massive failure that sidelines him at the company. That seems a little convenient. Or he knows he's sidelined and, well, I'm going to be sidelined anyway. Might as well do the thing I want to do. So we'll we'll quite frankly never know because he passed. We'll never know. I think it's more likely that he left due to the virtual boy problem than that it was coincidental that he had been planning to leave around that time to be an entrepreneur anyway. But it's told both ways. So Mm -hmm. you, you can't definitively say one or the other. But the point is that after that occurs, he leaves Nintendo. This icon of Nintendo leaves the company in in 1996. 
He founds his own development company called Koto, like the Japanese instrument, a Koto, K-O-T-O. He begins work on what he thinks will be the next big handheld system, the next evolution beyond the Game Boy. Still, not from a technological perspective, lateral thinking with withered technology. Mm-hmm. But something a little better than the Game Boy that even uses less battery power than the Game Boy that, that pushes things along a little bit. In October 1997, October 4th to be exact, Mr. Yokoi and a friend are driving on the expressway, and Yokoi gets in a minor auto accident. He rear-ends a truck. Everybody gets out of the cars to inspect the damage, which isn't too serious, and then Mr. Yokoi is struck by a passing car. Wow. And is fatally injured. He doesn't die on the scene, but his death is confirmed within hours. At the time, he was only 56 years old. So he could have very well be alive now. He, he would still be alive now, and he, he may have created great things. The final product that he had been working on at Kodo is finished after his death. It's released by the toy company Bandai as the Wonder Swan. The Wonder Swan never really makes a dent in the Game Boy-dominated market. But that's the last product that he had any kind of hand in that makes it to market is that Wonder Swan system. It's really one of the very first significant video game industry deaths. Obviously, he's not the first person who ever created a video game to die, but I think he was probably the first person of a large stature and influence in the video game industry to pass away. I'm, I may be forgetting somebody. I don't know. I'm, <laughs> it's hard with those absolutes, but... Well, I mean, if he got an obituary in the New York Times, I mean... Mm-hmm. Exactly. Major. So obviously quite the tragedy, and it's very possible that he would have created something more that was wonderful and, and amazing if he had been allowed to continue, but... Or who knows, he may have gone back to Nintendo after a time. Well, and that's also possible too. But it's fair to say that he may not have created the DS, he may not have created the Wii, he may not have created any of the Nintendo properties that have come about since he left the company in 1996, but you don't get those products without Gunpei Yokoi. And so his legacy truly is the Nintendo company that we know and love today. I don't know what else to say to that. <laughs> well, I think that's probably a good place to end it. <laughs> All right, then. What will we cover next time, then? Well, our last couple of episodes have been tied kind of to recent milestones, anniversaries, if you will. Current events. Yeah. And another thing that's happened recently is Richard Garriott of Origin and Ultima fame has just written a memoir. It's kind of a combination story of his life and just kind of storytelling and generally on his philosophy on things. It's not a straight up and up bio includes a combination of biographical info and, and musings. So in celebration of Richard Garriott telling a bit of his story, I thought we might tell a bit of his story too, and a bit of the story of his company, Origin Systems, which is rather significant in a way to this podcast, since the whole they create worlds things is very much a play on Origin's we create worlds tag that they used on their games in the 80s and 90s. So... Origin system sounds kind of good. Alrighty then. We will go into the origin story next time. <laughs> <laughs>
on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license.